0: I realize that many of us are under the illusion that the rise of Donald Trump to the presidency is a bug and not a feature. Make no mistake about it. Donald Trump is the feature. He's also the boorish culmination of the Southern strategy that Republicans have been committed to for decades. Trump's flaw and whether or not it was a flaw depends on who you talk to is that he was just a little too uncouth. But everything he did and said was perfectly on brand. So the word of the week is reincarnation. Now, I'm sure you've heard conservatives say that Republicans are the party of Lincoln, and some have even said very proudly that they are the party of Reagan. We need to analyze what they're really saying, because as it turns out, their faves are quite problematic. Now, let's start with Abraham Lincoln, who conservatives love to use as a talking point to prove how not racist this party is. Lincoln, of course, as you know, is credited with freeing the slaves. But here's the part that they conveniently leave out when they discuss Abraham Lincoln's legacy. He was very much a white supremacist. Lincoln was appalled by slavery, sure, but he also thought Black people were naturally intellectually inferior, and he did not believe Black people deserved to have the same rights as whites. During a debate against Senator Stephen Douglas in 1858, let me read you something that Abraham Lincoln said, and these are his exact words. I will say then that I am not nor ever have been in favor of bringing about in any way the social and political equality of the white and Black races." that I am not nor ever have been in favor of making voters or jurors of Negroes, nor of qualifying them to hold office, nor to intermarry with white people. And I will say in addition to this, that there is a physical difference between the white and black races, which I believe will forever forbid the two races living together on terms of social and political equality. Now, keep in mind that Lincoln also signed a bill to reparations to slave owners after slavery was ended, not to the enslaved, but to the slave owners. Now, let's move on to the other conservative fave, Ronald Reagan. Now, my inspiration behind this entire word of the week came from a very fascinating docu-series that's running on Showtime about the Reagan family. It's thoughtful, introspective, and it looks into Reagan and his presidency, who he is as a man. When I was growing up, Black folks hated ronald reagan as a kid i didn't really understand why because why would i i had zero understanding of politics race or any of these adult subject matters it wasn't until i got older that i understood why so many people why so many black people in particular had a problem with ronald reagan see ronald reagan ran the original make america great campaign well before donald trump like literally his campaign slogan was let's make america great again Ronald Reagan used the same dog whistles that Donald Trump used to create a cult and to try to get a second term in office. Before Ronald Reagan actually won the presidency in 1980, he first tried to challenge incumbent Gerald Ford in 1976, and he almost won because he successfully used welfare as a racist dog whistle. Reagan breathlessly painted the picture of widespread welfare fraud and of how poor people were lazy taking government handouts, and constantly getting over on hardworking whites. He talked about people buying stakes on food stamps in New York. He made up how a New York housing project had cathedral ceilings and swimming pools. And his grand finale was the Welfare Queen. The Welfare Queen was a Chicago woman named Linda Taylor. She was biracial, and according to Reagan, she used 80 names, 30 addresses— 15 telephone numbers to collect food stamps, Social Security, veterans benefits for four non existent deceased veterans' husbands, as well as welfare. Ronald Reagan was a genius at giving white folks the racial porn they needed to not only elect him, but to look at black and brown people as lazy, entitled, resource sucking degenerates. Hmm, who does that sound like? The problem with Reagan's story about the welfare queen is that he gave some facts but zero context see linda taylor was the joanne scammer of her day she wasn't just running scams to cheat the federal government she was a consummate con woman who pretty much ran scams on everybody that was her crap. she also was a gross anomaly a complete outlier the facts were that welfare fraud wasn't a thing and certainly never on that level But it became a convenient reason to frame poverty as a moral failing rather than a societal one. Even though during Reagan's time, three times as many white folks were on welfare than blacks. Reagan was able to successfully link welfare programs to black people. And the idea that black people who, by the way, built this fucking country might be getting a cent that wasn't earned was so bothersome, even to the white people who were on welfare, that Reagan became the people's champ. And in present day, when you look across much of the South, it's why in places like Mississippi, Arkansas, Louisiana, Kentucky, Alabama, poor and working class whites routinely vote against their own interest. If they even sniff that a program that could benefit them might also benefit black or brown people, Republicans can count on them to not only vote against it, but keep them in power and keep them in the same damn condition they've always been in. Also come to find out Ronald Reagan really wasn't that gentlemanly about his racism. In October of 1971, Reagan had a phone conversation with Richard Nixon, who also engaged in the same race baiting and dog whistles as Reagan and Donald Trump. Reagan, who was California's governor then, was pissed about the United Nations decision to recognize the People's Republic of China. What he was most upset about were the delegates who sided against the United States. In particular, he was upset at some delegates who represented African nations. Listen and learn. I did. Yeah. Those, those monkeys from those African countries. Animals <laughs> are still uncomfortable wearing shoes. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, and then they the tail
1: wags the dog there, doesn't it? Yeah.
0: It's an old adage, but it remains undefeated. There really is nothing new under the sun. Donald Trump is just the grandson of all of this. He just followed the same strategy. You can bet that someone is waiting in the wings to follow the same blueprint because it keeps working. They'll just be a little bit nicer about it. And that's why the word of the week is reincarnation. Now that I have successfully depressed you all, uh, let me... Bring you back to the light with today's guest. She's a politician, but she is definitely not cut from the Southern strategy cloth. She was overwhelmingly elected governor of Michigan in 2018. You know she was doing something right because she pissed off Donald Trump so much that he referred to her as, quote, that woman from Michigan. As you all know, Michigan is my home state, Detroit specifically. And in the D, we've given her a name that's much more loving and more fitting. She's just known to us as Big Gretch. It's because she's shown she will not be intimidated or bullied. Definitely not by the clown in the White House for sure. She's been very proactive and stern about stopping the alarming number of COVID cases in the state. And it's unfortunately created a lot of animosity. So much so that law enforcement uncovered a kidnapping plot against her that involved 13 men. Their plan wasn't just to kidnap her, but to possibly execute her before a television audience. Some old crazy true lies shit. Thankfully, those men have been apprehended, but Governor Gretchen Whitmer remains determined to lead on her own terms. So up next, we'll discuss why she got into politics, how she's dealt with the backlash and her reaction to how local officials unsuccessfully tried to disenfranchise black voters in Detroit. Big Gretch up next on Jamel Hill is Unbothered. Uh, Governor, so I realized, um, you know, as I was doing a deep dive into your background, I knew you went to Michigan State. I was trying to first figure out the years. You graduated the year I got there. So I just missed you.
1: You know what it was? Those are some of the best years of my life. I tell people all the time, the seven years I spent at state were the best. And people usually think that's because I extended my undergrad program for seven years. But I got my law degree there, too. I love that
0: university. Yeah, same. So um, what dorms did you stay in?
1: I was at Wonders. So I was in Wonders for two years. How about you?
0: Yeah, I was in Hubbard my first year, Wonders the second year. And uh, I would agree with you. I mean, it was uh, Michigan State's a special place. And I know everybody who goes to a university kind of says the same thing. But uh, in this case, I mean it. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Everyone says it, but we're Right. Yeah, we are right. Um, because I think you got to actually see a pretty decent football team here and
1: there. I did. I actually worked for the football team. I worked. Coach Perlis was uh, the football coach back in those days, and you know, I wanted to be a sports broadcaster. I, I didn't know that I wanted to be Jamel Hill, but that was my plan. Um, <laughs> and uh, you know, I, I, I loved it. It was a great opportunity to to see from the sidelines how it's done.
0: So when I saw that about you wanting to be a sports broadcaster, obviously that that piqued my interest. So what happened? Why didn't you go forward with it?
1: It's interesting. When I was at State, my dad encouraged me to go down uh, Michigan Avenue and go do an internship at the Capitol. And, you know, he had... Um, worked at the Capitol in various points in his life, and he said, so few people understand government. You are going to a university right down the street from a state Capitol. Go do an internship and just get a little get a little education down there. And so I was both working for the football team. I was working at um, in the state Capitol for the House Democrats. And when I was at that moment after I graduated from state and I was trying to decide what I wanted to do, I was kind of thinking about law school and a friend of mine said, if you still want to go into broadcasting, but you bring a law degree, that'll make you even more well-rounded. Maybe, maybe you should go on to that law school. And that's, that's what I ended up doing. And I've been in policy ever since, but I always love sports. And I got to tell you, Jamal, I called Michigan State winning
0: by three against Michigan this year. You did. I saw that. (laughs) I saw that. I was like, She knew. No one believed, no one believed, but... (laughs) But you knew. Um, Well, I I have to say, uh, as somebody who's been in sports broadcasting now for a few years, I mean, I was originally just a journalism major. I wanted to do print. Um, The fact that you thought a law degree would make you more well-rounded in sports broadcasting, I was like, did she not know that you'd... Like, are you kidding me? That would have made you immediately overqualified for pretty much every broadcasting job. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I I just, I think it's... um... You know, there's
1: there's so many ways to to make a difference that I think what you do, I mean, you speak truth to power, even from the vantage point of sports broadcasting. So, I mean, there's there's a way for each of us to to make a difference.
0: So you get involved in politics, um, which is an interesting role, because I think there maybe is because as a constituent and as a citizen, I hear people who are so disillusioned by politics. What was it that made you want to get into it? Um, Why did you think you can make a difference?
1: you know i when i was down at the state capitol it was a really weird time in michigan history we had a tie in the michigan house of representatives 55 democrats 55 republicans and they literally switched every other month who was in control who had the gavel who set the agenda and they worked really well together and that kind of a scenario could lead to complete gridlock or it could work really well and it worked really well and that's when i got my taste of politics i saw these leaders putting an agenda together where they could try to find common ground and and that's that was inspiring when i was in law school it flipped to republican control and when i was practicing law because we have term limits in michigan i was kind of looking at the field of candidates that was running for the state house and i thought you know i can do as good a job as any of these folks maybe i should maybe i should run and like many women in this business it was a man that suggested i think about running that's just it doesn't dawn on us. It was other people that encouraged us to do it. And so many stories are like that. Um, and and I jumped in. And it's because I know the decisions that happen there every day matter, right? They matter from the minute you wake up and brush your teeth by turning on your faucet. Is that drinking water going to be safe? To when you get in the car and you drive on the roads? Or, or do we need to fix the damn roads? That's what I ran on in 18. Um, and, and we've seen right now uh, that how... Life and death it can matter who's in these positions so I of course never knew I'd run for governor one day that was I you know I was just in the moment thinking I can do as good a job as any of these people i'm gonna I'm gonna run cause it matters
0: well one of the reasons uh, I, I think that you got elected in Michigan was because people saw you as somebody who could uh, really bring both sides together that you were somebody who had worked well with both both parties you had a, a history of that looking at our current political climate um in this country is it does not feel as if there is a possibility for unity i would i'm that's my take on it you know and, and joe biden obviously has other ideas and he immediately called for unity as somebody who's a governor of a state where there are some polarizing opinions particularly about how you operate um what do you think about that call for unity? Is that possible? Can can the other side be worked with despite all the things that we have seen them do and continue to do even right now as Joe Biden is the president elect?
1: I definitely think it's possible. And I definitely think that it's absolutely critical um, that we we strive for it. Now, does not mean you're going to find it on every issue? No. Does it mean that we're still going to have a lot of hard conversations as a, as a nation and as a state here? Absolutely. Um, when I ran, you know, I often would use the Mackinac Bridge as a symbol of the campaign. Mackinac Bridge spans the Upper Peninsula and the Lower Peninsula of Michigan. It was, when it was built, the largest suspension bridge of its kind. And it really connected our people and it um, it strengthened our economy. And I think in a world where Right now the man in the White House wants to build walls and keep people out. Building bridges is how we get things done. And I, I love that symbolism, but I think it's, I really believe the, the concept that we have to be able to have hard conversations and find common ground. This is a terribly polarizing moment. Um, and the, the vitriol is real and it's dangerous. And it's scary. I mean, I've confronted some things that I never would have imagined. Um, and yet I am committed to, to doing what I can to find that common ground where we can. And I'm not going to sacrifice my values. I'm not going to apologize for who I am. But I am going to every day work to try to, try to find that common ground. And that's why I liked the speeches that um, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris gave on that Saturday when it became clear that they had gotten the electoral college votes and he was going to be sworn in as the next president and she as the next vice president. I think that that's the right tone and I think leaders of goodwill on both sides of the aisle need to do their part to make sure that that we can start to mend some of these some of these wounds in our country.
0: I'll get to in a moment some of the things that that you have personally faced um in this political climate uh, much of which has been uh engineered by the by the president by his language and by the tone that he set but uh but right now you have a number of republicans who are refusing to to refusing to acknowledge the fact that joe biden has won this election is this theater for the base like how concerned should we be about this because these people of goodwill that you're talking about are participating in nonsense so is this just political theater or or are you really concerned about this
1: I think it's both, to be honest. You know, I saw President Obama talk about the biggest disappointment is not in the behavior of the guy in the White House. We know who he is now. But the biggest disappointment is in these leaders who have been in these positions of power who are towing a, a line to appease one person as opposed to doing what they know is in the best interest of our country. And I think that's the most distressing part of this moment. I do think that it's largely theater in that it's not going to change the outcome of this election. Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are going to be sworn in on January 20th. They overwhelmingly won. They overwhelmingly won Michigan, and yet they're still tinkering around with the State Board of Canvassers here in Michigan. Um, so this is, I, I do think, theater that is designed to perpetuate maybe a brand beyond January 20th. But at the, at the end of the day, um, there's going to be a new president. And Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are going to uh, be setting an agenda. And the saddest part of this moment, I think, is the fact that they haven't started this transition. When so many American lives are being lost every single day because of the mishandling of this virus, um, these games have a real toll. And, and that is American lives lost and. Um, the economy that is is suffering because of their mismanagement as well.
0: Do some politicians not understand that, that that the games that they play or the gamesmanship or, you know, even the theater of it all, do they not realize that there's a real world consequence for the rest of us? I think
1: there are people who don't appreciate what a transition is and why it's so critical. Um, I think that there are people who don't know the incredible work that has to get done in a very short period of time. When I came in as governor, we had 55 days from the day of the election to when I was sworn in. I was sworn in on the 1st of January. So it was an sh- even more condensed period of time, but it's a state. It's not a, a, a nation. Um, and I had an a outgoing governor who we were very different, um, but he, was, he conducted a transition worthy of the people of Michigan. So we could make this um, seamless handover. The, the incredible toll that they are exacting on the American public is not being realized because people don't know how much work has to be done right now. Our homeland security is undermined. Our ability to meet the needs of people in the middle of a pandemic is being undermined. Uh, the needs of individual states who are trying to keep people alive and help people put food on the table, literally, that is at risk here the aid that people need just to get through this next couple of months, which is going to be so hard with this pandemic. All of that is, is being undermined by their obstinance and their, the ego.
0: Now you have faced uh, quite a bit of obstinance in, in my home, our home state. Um, When, uh, you know, of course, unfortunately, Michigan made news because of what the Board of Canvassers uh, did or attempted to do, I should say, by trying not to certify specifically the votes in Wayne County, Pinpoint, Detroit, which is obviously the largest city in Wayne County. How surprised were you that they originally deadlocked to not certify these votes?
1: Well, I I was surprised because these are not positions where there is judgment. (laughs) They are ministerial. It means, you know, they just take in the numbers and then they certify it and send it on. It is not their job to go through and assess. That's already been done. So they take an oath to do this and any games to undermine that, um, it could put them in ethical and certainly legal jeopardy as well. So the fact that these people could be talked into putting themselves in personal jeopardy by um, a, a White House—it's—it's it's really stunning. Like this is not normal. I feel like we have to keep saying that in 2020. But this is not normal, and it is not not acceptable. The it was explained, I think, a couple of legal minds explained it this way. These ministerial jobs are simply to do the paperwork. Um, It's like when you go get your driver's license. You know, you have an instructor that decides if you pass or fail, but then you have your certificate that you passed. You go in and hand it to the person at the Secretary of State's office, and they give you your license. They are the ministers of what's already been done. That's what a board of canvassers does. They just sign off and send the paperwork. Do the math, send it in. It is not theirs to go back and say, I don't know, did you actually pass this test? No, that's not their job. They need to, you know, do their job, respect the will of the people. And I think the attack on Wayne County um, and having the the largest population of African-Americans in Wayne County, it's, it's not lost on me what's going on there too. And I think it's important that we recognize that.
0: Yeah. What is your message, though, to black residents in Detroit who have had to stomach seeing officials um, in Michigan, officials that are supposed to work kind of on their behalf, work actively to disenfranchise them? Because they also have to then see, you know, people from the Michigan legislature go meet with Donald Trump. Um, Like, what can you say to them to reassure them that there is not this plot to to really minimize, diminish or eliminate their voices?
1: Well, we know that we know that Joe Biden won. We know that Wayne County was the most important part of the puzzle. The road to the White House goes through the state of Michigan, and if you go through the state of Michigan, you go through Wayne County. The voters will uh, will be respected, and that's that's my job, uh, as well as the Secretary of State and the Attorney General. And we're doing our jobs to ensure that. But going forward, we can't ever permit this kind of gamesmanship for. I mean, it's it's just really stunning, and I think it's important that people in positions of power call it out and call it what it is. And it's whether it's there's domestic violence being perpetrated against a sitting governor or Dr. Fauci, or it is domestic violence to seeking to disenfranchise uh, a majority African American city. We're going to call it out, and we're going to we're going to seek justice, and we will not let it stand.
0: Now, I don't want to I want to make sure that I phrase this correctly, because I know that people get sometimes locked in on phrases. Um, Michigan, right now, you have imposed some new restrictions on coronavirus. Um I think you called it a pause. Is that correct? OK, all right. I want to make sure I got that right so that people don't lose their mind about what it is. Um, that, of course, was, again, met with some backlash. Um, which you have encountered as you have, um, even earlier in this virus, as you impose many of these um, restrictions, what has been the biggest obstacle for you in trying to get people in the state to understand why this is necessary to do as we go through every day setting new records for coronavirus cases?
1: Well, honestly, I think the the biggest obstacle has been the White House. And we have a White House that has never shared consistent or accurate information about the virus. The president knew how serious this virus was, and yet from his biggest megaphone in the land, he has continually undermined efforts of the nation's governors to do what didn't happen at the federal level, and that is to step up and to create the systems to protect people and take the actions to keep this virus at bay. Back in March, when... Detroit was just exploding with COVID cases at the same time New York City was and New Orleans and Chicago. Um, We were calling on assistance from the federal government. I simply needed N95 masks for our nurses and doctors in Detroit hospitals that were full already. And basically the message from the White House is, we're not your shipping clerk. You know, go, go get them yourself. And that's when the governors started trying to out-compete one another just to get our hands on these masks and gloves. Um, African-Americans were, are 14% of our population in Michigan. There were 40% of the cases, uh, 40% of the deaths in those early days. And so the actions that we took were to bring down our COVID cases, to educate the public about this unique threat that COVID presented, especially to communities of color and the African-American community in particular, but th- there's no question the biggest obstacle has been the White House itself.
0: Do you think if you were Ron DeSantis that you would have got that reaction? <laughs> of course not. <laughs> <laughs> just wondering. I, I mean, I know he, in particular, the, the administration was like, if you're in a Democrat-run city, you just ass out. Like, that's just the end of it. I'm like, wow, I did, I did not realize this. Okay. <laughs> yeah, no, uh,
1: uh, of course not. But then again, if I was Ron DeSantis, I, I wouldn't have done anything. And we'd have lost thousands of more People. In yeah, I'm gonna say
0: you also probably wouldn't have asked for the mask either. So there's that part of it. Um, so of course, uh, you know, as there has been um, a lot of misinformation, a lot of back and forth by people about about the the effects of this virus. Then we recently have Matt Stafford's wife <laughs> going off on social media about how you have put her in a dictatorship. Um, when things like that happen. Um, uh, first, what's your response to to what she said, and and how does that sort of um, impact your relationship with the public as somebody who's trying to to govern through a very unique and difficult crisis?
1: Well, I get it. You know, people are frustrated. They're tired of it. They're exhausted. They're stressed. We've lost um, over eight thousand Michiganders to this virus. Uh, there, are, you know, countless kids who should who would be so much better off if they were in school, but they can't be because of, of the toll that this virus has taken. We've got businesses that have been closed or are closing again right now. Um, It's a hard time. It, it's hard. And people are frustrated and I, I get that. However, we are not out of the woods yet. This virus is raging across our country. The numbers that are happening right now in America are worse than anything we saw in the spring. And so it's really important that we stay tethered to the epidemiology, listen to the public health experts, and try to get our federal government to give support for these businesses that are struggling. I don't want restaurants to to go under. I don't want people to be out of work. But I know that the nature of this virus is the more people inside from different households in places where they're not wearing masks, it's inherently dangerous, and it's contributing to community spread and more loss of life. and So we've got to get our arms around the crisis in order to get our arms around the economic toll that it's taking. So I can't be bullied. I can't listen to every post and, and question the decisions we're making. We've got to follow the epidemiology. I spent yesterday, um, so we're, we're talking on a Monday, I spent uh, Sunday talking with national experts on COVID. Uh, Ashish Jha, Scott Gottlieb. The people that you see on the national news all the time, so we could ask questions, and we're in for a couple of hard months. There's no question in the Midwest, especially when the temperatures go down, we go inside we are in the holidays, which is inherently more dangerous because people aren't unfortunately traveling and gathering, which we've asked them not to, but they're still going to do some of that and um, we're going to have a we're going to have a couple of tough months ahead, however. The vaccines are on the horizon. The spring, uh, I mean, there's light at the end of the tunnel. And so there's reason for c- concern right now in the moment, in the next eight weeks, 10 weeks. But beyond that, there's reason for lots of optimism. And that's what we have to try to balance
0: here. There, The the word that everybody is afraid of is lockdown. Um, what's your level of confidence, though, that uh, though we are not able to transition properly into the next administration, we have stimulus, a stimulus bill that continues to sit <laughs> that has not been voted on. Thank you, Mitch McConnell. Um, I'll say it. I mean, I don't think you You probably I have no idea how you feel about him. I think he's an awful person. But let me just skip ahead. The whole point is that um, we have this assistance that's right within reach, but not quite there. What's your level of confidence that maybe this time next year it will be a different reality for us um, in this pandemic? A good reality.
1: Like one year from right now, this time next year, it'll be much better. Life's going to be a lot better. It, it absolutely is. We're making huge progress in vaccines. Now, vaccines aren't, you know, as, as soon as there's a vaccine approved, it doesn't mean automatically everyone's, you know, you can resume life as it was. However, we will be able to ramp up and get people vaccinated. We, but we got to earn the trust of the public. Certainly, people are going to be skeptical with all the politics around vaccines in this this year. It's going to be uh, even more important that we educate the public about the efficacy and the safety of these vaccines, that we make it easy for people to access. Um, it, we can't assume everyone in a rural community can get to one location. And we also can't assume that um, everyone in an urban community is going to have confidence. Like this is going to take a special kind of outreach to different communities. Um, and it's going to be a An undertaken unlike anything this nation's ever gone through. So we got our work cut out for us, but I definitely um, think that there's reason to feel very optimistic about where we'll be a year from now.
0: I'm sure as you were immediately kind of laying out what your plan was for the pandemic and, and going in real time, probably one of the things you did not expect that you'd have to deal with was a bunch of gun toting citizens surrounding the Capitol trying to protest against you trying to save their lives, which I also thought was interesting. I was like, I mean, y'all realize she's just trying to save your life. Um, when you saw that kind of very forceful response, um, what were your your thoughts about what was, was happening? Because it's one thing to resist and complain. It's another thing to arm yourself and then show this level of force, physical force against what is just trying to stop a pandemic? What, were you, what was your reaction to that?
1: Uh, I was talking to someone the other day, and, and they asked the same question. And they said, you know, the, there's four primary reactions to things, right? It's, it's are, you, are you mad? Are you sad? Are you glad? Are you scared? And I was thinking about that. What, what was my reaction? Well, I actually wasn't mad. I, you know, I, I didn't like it. I mean, let's be honest. I did not like it. Um, and I was not uh, fearful. I wasn't. Um, I wasn't glad. So what was that? I? I was sad. I was sad, Jamel. Looking at this um, group of people coming together, you know, first of all, it portrayed Michigan in a terrible light because people are looking at these images. And you've got people with um, Confederate flags, which is not something you see in Michigan very often. We're a Union state, you know, proud of it. Um, Nazi symbolism, Trump floats, it was more a um, Trump rally atmosphere than uh, unhappy citizens, you know, protesting the the efforts to keep them safe. And I think that's why I was sad because the efforts that I was undertaking really were to keep people safe um, and to see people come together without masks on in the midst of this pandemic where we know that's the single best thing you can do to stay safe it It really uh it really bummed me out because man, this is a virus that is is deadly and it spreads fast and and here we know what the best science is telling us, and people aren't willing to do it and that's That's sad to me because i want I want us all to rally against this common enemy, not to see one another as enemies
0: um I had to explain to people I was like, well, oh, there's Detroit, and then there's Michigan. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's two, not all obviously not all michigan cities are i mean we have some wonderful cities in the state but i was like <laughs> it's it's an element there that you probably didn't realize was there but nevertheless it was there and unfortunately for that to then escalate into the um i'm sure again something else in as you were plotting your career in politics and became you when you became governor a plot against your life a plot to kidnap you um it, one i mean i'm i'm obviously glad that None of that ever happened on any part of their plan. But as somebody who's in the public eye, who the president has tried to create a, a level, not tried to, has flat out directed animosity at you and directed his supporters at, at, at to do the same. I definitely know what that's like. Um, did that in any way, maybe not change how you govern, but that, did that shake you to the point that you maybe second guessed yourself about some things because you realize there's this element out there that is, um, that is prepared to maybe go to a level that, you know, is, is deadly. I, I think in that one, I was mad. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. That was one of your four reactions. Mad is that one. I understand. (laughs) You
1: know, words matter. Um, it was, Nancy Pelosi asked me to give the response to the State of the Union back in February, which seems like a lifetime ago. Um, and, and of course, this is prior to COVID. We didn't know, you know where life was going to be headed. And in that speech, I talked about how words matter. And I, and I really think that it's an important um, message. Because when you're in a position of power, what you say, people hear it people act on it people believe it and so your words really matter and and my message back then was don't look at what they say you know don't listen to what they say look at what they do well here uh, on campaign rallies when they chant things like locker up it's to you know it's, it's to inflame and it's to focus the vitriol and when um you call someone like me uh you know names a uh, dictator or whatever say rise up uh you know liberate, liberate. <laughs> right yeah. all of that um it it inflames this element that is stoking that they're stoking to to take action um, he when all those people showed up with the weapons at the capitol he said i should negotiate with these very good people you know it's kind of like the charlottesville language right um and and so it is words matter. These pe- people are, are hearing what they want to hear and they're taking these actions. And even after the plot was revealed, they kept doing it. And that's when I got angry because it's one thing to to you know be inciting something and pretend not to know it. But when you've, when you've seen what's happened and you keep doing it, it's really dangerous. And as a governor, that's one aspect of who I am, but I'm a mom too. I got two daughters who are teenagers who I've had to have horrifying conversations with that I never imagined I'd have to. That's the aspect of the job I never, ever could have conceived of. And yet here we are. And that's sadly becoming normal in 2020. We can't let it become normal beyond this moment.
0: Yeah. Um, it, it, uh, the hope is that some of that will die down, but um, with the way the rest of the party, they seem they, like they want to hold on to that element and use it for their own advantage. They feel like they can control it. I'm like, y'all don't even know what y'all doing right now, but uh, that's neither here nor there. Uh, we're going to take a, a quick break, uh, Governor, um, and when we come back, um, I have some very pointed questions to ask you about Michigan State football. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Let's do it. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) because I got to get to the real meat of this. It's like our university, what's happening right now? Um, But yes, some questions to ask you about that. And of course, um, you being parodied on Saturday Night Live. But more with uh, Governor Whitmer when we come back on Jamel Hill is Unbothered. Governor, also uh, one of the interesting things that have come out of this is as soon as Joe Biden was elected, there was a lot of conversation in the Democratic Party about the right way to go in terms of appealing to moderates. You, I'm sure you may have seen some of the comments that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez made about the party, um, feeling as if progressive voices like her and Rashida Talib, who's a, a representative from Detroit, that those progressive voices have been... Um, kind of not necessarily muffled, but people are blaming them for why the Democrats didn't do better at the House level, because they lost some seats there, even though they they maintain control. Um, I I just would love to get your take on on the party. There's this idea that appealing to moderates um, still should be a top priority. And when they hear things like defund the police and other things, that it scares people away from Democrats. What's your take on this kind of I guess, infighting on philosophy that's happening right now within the party.
1: I think one of the reasons I, I'm a Democrat is because I love the fact that we really are have a big umbrella and there are a lot of different people with a lot of different views that can find their core values at the center of the Democratic Party, but can have very different um, takes and, and thoughts about where we should be headed. And I think that's important. And I think it's a it's a real strength you know, as you look around the country, what happens in one area would or would not be acceptable in another in terms of, you know, electable. And I think that's important. And we have to give one another a little bit of grace on that front. But I think, Joe Biden, um, his selection of Kamala Harris as his running mate, to the various appointments that he's going to be announcing in the coming days for a cabinet and for positions. I I really believe that he is a man of his word, that he is genuinely interested in ensuring there's a seat at the table, an empowered seat at the table for people of all walks in terms of, of their demographics, but also in terms of their. Philosophies and their ideas, and I think it's going to make his administration a lot stronger because of it. Um, we're always going to have these debates. I think what you see happening in the Republican Party is is a lot more interesting in terms of kind of the 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 war that is happening, the push and pull between you know the Republicans that um, like Mitt Romney and the Ted Cruzes of of the world and and many many beyond. But um, I'd like. You know, I I have a great deal of respect for everyone that you've named on the Democratic side, and I don't see eye to eye with every single one of them. But I do think that there's a lot of reasons to feel very proud and optimistic about where the Biden-Harris administration is going to be headed.
0: Um, You know that I I know that everybody, as you said, like there's a, a bunch of ideas, and everybody's not going to, you know, agree on every everything. But there seems to be this narrative that the Democrats have somehow they're out of touch with the working class. Sometimes the way people use working class, I'll be honest, I hear them say white. And I'm like, you realize there's a lot of people in the working class. You know, Michigan's a working class, blue collar kind of place. There's a lot of black people in Michigan, just like when they say Midwest. I'm like, you do realize black people live in the Midwest too. So anyway, um, but there seems to be this narrative that the Democrats have lost this particular um, sect of people. One, do you uh, agree with that? And, And where or why does that narrative you think exist?
1: I I don't agree with it. Um, you know, I I got elected in Michigan in 2018. Trump won Michigan by less than 11,000 votes 2 years before. I won by over 400,000 votes. I flipped a lot of areas that that he had won. Um, and it was really focused on kind of that those dinner table issues. You know, I <laughs> I got around Michigan. Michigan's a big state. When you're in Lansing, Michigan, which is the capital, you're as close to Washington, D.C. as you are to the western end of the Upper Peninsula. I mean, it's a huge state. And by getting around and actually talking to people, whether I was in you know, downtown Saginaw or in Gogebic County in you know, rural Upper Peninsula, People would say to me, I just want you to fix the damn roads,
0: <laughs> all right? And <laughs> That's such a Michigan thing. <laughs> I know. And,
1: and, and like that turned into our campaign mantra, fix the damn roads. It was on the side of the bus that I was touring the state in. Um, and people were like, oh, that's, that's so like spicy. You can't use language like that. You know, Give, stop clutching your pearls. That's how we're all talking about the roads. I didn't focus group, it. it just, it became our thing because that's how everyone is talking about it. When you show up and you talk to people, that's what focuses you on the things that people are worried about at home. Because if you got to fix the rims on your on your wheels or you gotta replace your windshield because the damn roads are so torn up. That's money that's coming out of your child care or out of your rent. It's money that's not going toward maybe a a, a little break with your family for a weekend to, you know, get out of town. I mean, that's the real thing. That's the real deal. And so the working class. I mean, I, I I I know people use that phrase to refer to different sectors of of society, but the average person in this country is 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 good and they work hard and they expect their government to work as hard and to be as good as they are. And I, I think you you know that by showing up
0: when you talk to you know people when you talk to your constituents, um, you know. What are the the issues that are on their mind? Because I think we get a picture from social media that's not exactly accurate. As somebody who's on the ground talking to to voters all the time and constituents, you know what are we what are we missing about what people's real concerns in this country are?
1: Well, right now, I mean, the dinner table issue of twenty twenty is COVID. Um, whether it is because it's someone who's worried about losing their health care, someone who's lost a loved one. Um, someone who is out of work because their employer had to shut down for a prolonged period of time. Um, This is the dinner table issue of 2020, but it's about those fundamentals, right? How are you going to put food on the table? Are you getting a paycheck? If you are getting a paycheck, how much of it is going toward health care that you can't afford? This is always the centerpiece of of what we're talking about as a country. If you're an employer, uh, you're worried about getting employees, right, and keeping them healthy and Um, having, so it's all, it's a lot of those same issues and, and that's why, you know, as, um, campaigns often come to a close and there's some weird, issue that all of a sudden pops up that everyone gets incensed over, whether it's, you know, the, the phrase defund the police, or it is about transgender people in bathrooms, you know, of 2016 closing days. Um, those dinner table issues at the end of the day are true for every single person in this country. And I think that's where we really have to focus our, our time and our energy.
0: Mm. Is it, um, is it easier to get people to understand the commonality we have when you're in person versus when they're getting this information silos from, from different places? Because I, I've often contended that we have way more in common than we do. That's different. But something gets lost in translation where we, we're not really on the same page as a, as a politician. Is it, you know, how difficult is it to, for, to get people to see what the common ground actually is? I I think you're,
1: you're very astute, Jamel. I mean, I I really agree with what you just said, you know, and I think this moment has made it even harder to find common ground because we're not together. You know, we're all on social media. We've got our TVs on 24 seven. We're um, not connecting in a way that we can look one another in the eye and, and really understand what's going on. Um, you know, the the conversation around uh, policing and race in our country, it's really important. And frankly, there's a lot of people who can't, who haven't even been able to ask the questions to try to understand how it feels to be an African-American person in, in the United States today, especially in a city where there is... Um, you know, a real issue around policing. How do we have those conversations from a distance through social media where so much is magnified? I mean, I, I just, I, it is very difficult and yet it's, it's more important than ever that we, that we, we try to do that. Um, so I, I, it's, it's a challenge. There's no question, but we can, we can get through
0: it. You, um, uh, along those same lines, you declared racism, a public health issue, uh, why did you decide to sort of boldly state that? And, and and what was the response to you saying that?
1: Well, the response was different <laughs> depending on the group. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. Um, <laughs> well, you know, one of the things that, that we were very intentional about doing when putting um, together our cabinet, as well as the leaders in my executive office is making sure that there is real representation and not tokenism, but empowered representation. And because of that, we're smarter, and we're stronger, and, and we're, we're better educated. The, um, the COVID crisis, you know, Dr. Janae Khaldun is my chief medical executive. She's an African-American woman who is an ER doc. She was one of the first people in the country to look at the data and say there is a disparity for communities of color. Uh, We've got to get this demographic data out there. We've got to do outreach to the black community in particular. And, and, you know, that really designed a lot of our efforts and and it's because she was at the table and she had the experience and the lens that brought this to light. And and I think as a nation, we've all benefited because Dr. Janae Caldoun was at, at a table in an empowered position. Garland Gilchrist, our, our uh, lieutenant governor, first African-American lieutenant governor in Michigan history, is the chair of our COVID uh, disparities task force. From that, we've got a much larger agenda coming together. So beyond COVID, we're getting to work addressing a lot of the systemic things that have contributed to disparate opportunity and outcomes. So there's a lot of different um, pieces to this, but it was that conversation that, you know, it was very clear we have to declare that this is a, a public health crisis, Um Racism is, and it 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 is it's woven into so many parts of our society that we have to recognize it so that we can fix it.
0: What would you say has been key in helping you um, understand things from a racial and you've you mentioned systemic racism a few times. What has been key in helping you understand those issues?
1: Um, I I think uh, the the desire to learn and understand um, the background that I have, you know, growing up in Lansing, Michigan. Um, that you know, it's a. I think those, those are pieces that have helped me understand where my experience stops and where I need to seek uh, to understand and and ask questions. And you know, um, I come to it I think with a, a a background that helps me, but I also recognize I'm I'm humble enough to know I don't have all the answers. I got to surround myself by people who are going to straight talk and and who are are going to um, make our administration better and more representative and more thoughtful and more sensitive and and more strategic on all of these fronts.
0: As we, uh, you know, this year has felt like 20 years smashed into one because on top of dealing with the pandemic, we were also dealing with you know, a racial reckoning um, in this country where we're having conversations that I don't ever recall us having as a nation in my life. Um, what were those conversations like in, in Michigan? I could see some of it from afar. There were obviously some protesting that was happening there. But as your governor and watching this unfold in your own state, what what's your perspective about what you saw happening in Michigan?
1: I think that it's a long overdue moment. And there were a lot of horrible <laughs> Um, things that have contributed to this national conversation happening right now. Um, obviously, the death of George Floyd, but there's certainly so many others. And um, in Michigan, I think that we've taken this seriously, that we've worked with community leaders, that we have moved forward in terms of our outreach and work around uh, COVID has put us in a, a maybe a a better informed place so that our residents know that where our priorities are, where our values are, and uh, know that we are going to continue to press forward in a, in a thoughtful, inclusive way so that we actually address the contributing factors to what's going on in this country. Um, so I, I'm proud of, of all of that. I recognize we, we all got a lot of work to do in this country. Michigan's no different in that regard. We maybe are in a stronger place because we are, are mindful and intentional about taking
0: it on. I guess uh, someone in your position—I mean, to some degree—you're always sort of campaigning um, and um, you know, mindful of the fact that you know if whatever office you seek you know after that or as you rise that you know you're kind of always in campaign mode to some degree um disinformation and propaganda is a real problem in this country uh as a politician um how do you how do you combat that when it feels like people are being you know sort of radicalized in a in a very different way than i've ever seen through social media through news channels who are devoted specifically to a mindset so how do you work against that
1: that's a, a great question. Um, I watched The Social Dilemma not long ago, and I don't know if you've seen it, but man, is it depressing. Uh, <laughs> you know, the the algorithms, the, the information, how it is um, curated to each of us to exploit our online presence, and it's just really d- disturbing. And um, I am hopeful that at the national level, we will see some action in a Biden Harris administration that really, um, takes on kind of social media and educates the public. Uh, I, I know that here at the, at the state level, I mean, the sharing of information is, is really important, the being inclusive and thoughtful about it, but, um, this is so pervasive and so problematic and so dangerous that it really is, I think, going to take a Biden-Harris administration to um, hold these businesses who are just profiting off of um, the continuous uh, misinformation to hold them accountable and to, to hold us all to a higher standard and to understand how do we, how do we address it. I don't have a great easy solution here. It's it's very complicated and it's very distressing and it is urgent.
0: Yeah, um, and it doesn't help that because we we're you know we're all in some various form of of, of lockdown that people is giving people more time to absorb some of these things. Uh, you know was there everybody knows that you were you were vetted for for vice president. Um, did you allow yourself or how much did you allow yourself to to think about a a lawn sign that said Biden Whitmer.
1: <laughs> I, well, you know what? We've been in this pandemic the whole time, so I don't even know if I processed it, to be honest. Um, it was an honor, to be sure. And when um, the announcement was Kamala Harris, everyone in my household was thrilled. I can tell you that. Um, she's phenomenal. And, you know, I've told Joe Biden, uh, he needed to win this election. And I'm happy to do anything I can to help him do that. I'm thrilled he got a found a great running mate in Kamala Harris and that I get to keep my job that I've always wanted, which is governor of Michigan and have a new best friend in the White House. So it's all good. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. It, it it did work out. However, it also gives you an idea of what's possible, right? And so um has being vetted and, and going through that process has it changed some of your political goals? No. <laughs> mm. No? Okay. No. no.
1: You know what? I, um, I, I, love, I love Michigan. I got three generations of my family here. Uh, the thing I've always liked about state government is you're close enough to the people that you can see the benefit of your work. And that's something I, I really, I really like. And um, I've never been really interested in going to Washington, D.C., uh, I know, never say never, but I'm really happy here.
0: All right, because I'm going to play this conversation back when I see <laughs> she announces running for president Gretchen Whitmer. I'll be like, now, nah, did she say? <laughs> well, no, I I you said that, you know, you you hadn't originally thought about being governor, but as you go and you see what's possible, maybe there is, you know, something else. I know the, the people in Michigan don't want to lose you necessarily, but nobody would blame you if you had some ambitions that were perhaps behind, beyond Michigan, you know?
1: Well, they they say never say
0: never, Jamel, but
1: I can't imagine. I, you know, I really do. I love it here in Michigan.
0: To that end, there was a, a I thought a, a curious story that came out about the people bringing articles of impeachment against you for, so which one of the four reactions did that get? The articles of impeachment. <laughs> I was not glad. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you know it, it's just
1: it's just silly. Uh, you know, it, there's. I know that people are they don't agree with every action that I've had to take, and certainly the Republicans in the legislature have their, their own political calculus that they're making. But, you know, what I'm not doing anything that many other governors aren't doing to try to save lives, and I'm not going to be bullied by the White House. I sure as heck am not going to be bullied by the state house.
0: Yeah. And I should also say the House Speaker was like, nah, this is not happening. Um, uh, who is a, you know, Republican. So I should I should put that in there. Um, you have been able to, you know, nevertheless, thanks in part to the president, um, gain a, a, a certain amount of, of national, um, you know, fame. So much to the point that you were parodied on Saturday Night Live. I heard what you said about you know, the LaBatts comment, because it was funny, because that was a, I don't remember the actor's name who played you. But that was the first thing I noticed. I was like, I don't think a Michigan governor would drink LaBatts. Like that would be, (laughs) she would definitely drink a Michigan beer. But between the accent and what was said, what did you think about the parody? I thought it was funny.
1: Uh, Cecily Strong was the actress who played me. And um, her you know the accent was a little off it was a little fargo um and and drinking the Canadian beer was a little off, but I thought it was it was funny and um I sent her a bunch of Michigan beer afterwards, so that you know if she ever played me again, she would have some Michigan beer on hand
0: <laughs> i though i 'm sure to some degree you hope she You're you're not another Saturday Night Live parody. I've never wanted to be uh, played on Saturday Night Live, and I'm good
1: if that's the one and only time it happens.
0: (laughs) (laughs) The choice is yours. You can get with this or you can get with that. You can get with this or you can get with that. You can get with this or you can get with that. All right. Well, look, uh, Governor Whitner. before I get you out of here, it's a game I like to play with my guests. It's called This or That. I give you two choices. You pick one. You're a politician. I know how y'all like to skirt the line. This will not be. This will not be possible in this game. I'm just telling you. All right. So prepare to make headlines. Right, let's do it. Okay. Um, Fago or Verner's. 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 Does it still cure everything? Just curious. It does. It does. My mother gave it to us every time we were sick. It cures everything. In addition to making the dopest ice cream floats of all time. Absolutely. Uh, Coney Island or Buddy's Pizza. Oh,
1: I I, I don't know. That's hard. Coney Island, I guess.
0: Okay. (laughs) I was like, I'm not letting you wiggle out of this. All right. Just so you know. Um, Better made. And for those who are listening, these are all Michigan things. Like Buddy's Pizzas is phenomenal. I have to get it every time that I go back.
1: It is phenomenal.
0: Yeah. Um, Better made plain chips or better made barbecue chips. Oh, barbecue. Okay. Now, um, you have two nicknames. One of which is Big Gretch, which is uh, I think is amazing. A whole song (laughs) that was named (laughs) that was made in your honor. And of course, that woman from Michigan. Um, Which one of those do you prefer?
1: (laughs) Well, Big Gretch, because it was bestowed on me with love. That woman from Michigan was used to insult me by the White House. So I'm good with Big Gretch. (laughs)
0: <laughs> and do you actually own a pair of Cartiers, a, a pair of Buffs?
1: I do not, Jamel, because they are um, more expensive than my uh, than I'm than I'm used to, and <laughs> I'm hard on
0: sunglasses, so I can't make that kind of investment. Okay, <laughs> I mean, I know that I'm sure that they have tried to give you a pair, but I don't think you're allowed to accept them. Is that the way it goes? Okay. They, they, they did a GoFundMe for some buffs, but then, <laughs> that, then we donated, they donated
1: the money to um, a good cause in Detroit. So it was all good.
0: Okay. Cause that is a Detroit staple. I immediately know when somebody is from Detroit, if I see him wearing some buffs, I'm like, okay. And my husband <laughs> has a few pair cause he's from Detroit and that's just how it is. All right. And finally, and I, I purposely made this the toughest one as you as you talked about you ran your campaign on fix the damn roads so which one uh would you rather have new roads in michigan your campaign promise or a lion super bowl win roads <laughs> what that wasn't even hard <laughs> and, like, do you know how long people in detroit have been suffering like they could take a few more potholes are you kidding roads <laughs> you're like roads like nah I'm, like a um, Okay, well, well, fine. Um, Sorry, Lions fans. You're just going to have to continue to be terrible. Um, Well, look, uh, Governor, I know you have a lot of important things to do, but I really appreciate you taking this time out and sitting with me um, just on a personal level as a Michigan State grad. It just uh, really does my heart proud to see all the things you're doing in the state. Uh, I love it when you stick it to the president or you just irritated him. Um, I'm, I'm not going to miss that part of it, but I certainly loved your response. And uh, just thank you for just all you've done. I know it's a bit of a thankless position, but there are a lot of people whose lives that you have saved. And so um, I appreciate you for that and for taking care of the, the city and the, the state that I will always love.
1: Thank you, Jamal. I'm so glad to have spent some time with you. I think the world of of you and uh, this was a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, definitely. Keep giving them hell, Governor. Governor Whitmer is getting out of here. Um, y'all know what's coming up next. Final segment, Fuck It, I'm Bothered. That people accuse me of being unforgiven or not allowing for people to evolve, but that really couldn't be further from the truth. I believe that people can evolve and change. For example, at one time, former President Barack Obama did not support same-sex marriage, but when his second term came along, he had a different point of view. He backed up his evolution with action by installing protections for the LGBTQ community against discrimination, and he also lifted the ban on LGBTQ members serving openly in the military. Now, his words plus his actions are why he is now considered an ally to that community despite his previous position. But when you don't put in the work to evolve— then you're going to get this work. And more importantly, these receipts. Fuck it, I'm bothered that Donald Trump's top henchman, Rudy Giuliani, had the nerve to tweet condolences about the death of former New York City Mayor David Dinkins, who died at 93 years old last week and was the first and only black mayor of New York City. A big reason Dinkins only stayed in office for a few years is because of Giuliani, who, among other things, led a racist riot against Dinkins in 1992. Giuliani led thousands of white cops. And trust me, this is not an exaggeration. You can look it up on YouTube to City Hall because Dinkins wanted to establish a civilian review board to look into widespread allegations against misconduct by the NYPD. Here's Giuliani. Being a ringleader. These cops were here to put pressure on Mayor
1: David Dinkins, hoping he would reconsider his request for an all civilian complaint review board. The board hears complaints about city police officers. Right now, it consists of 12 people, equally represented by civilian and police members. These cops don't want it to change, and they had support from the mayor's arch rival, Rudy Giuliani.
0: The reason the morale of the police department of the city of New York is so low is one reason and one reason alone. David Jenkins!
1: Let's assume this is the worst legislation known to man. It is still no excuse for the behavior that that at least the reports I've gotten of how they behaved out there today. And I say that Phil Caruso and the leadership of the PBA is responsible. And for Rudy Giuliani to 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 urge them on, as it were, demonstrates an irresponsibility on his behalf.
0: Now, here's another account of what happened at this Klan rally, which was written by former New York Newsday columnist, a legend, Jimmy Breslin. Here's what Jimmy wrote. The cops held up several of the most crude drawings of Dinkins performing perverted sex acts. Breslin also wrote that one officer said, now you got a nigger right inside City Hall. How do you like that? A nigger mayor. Giuliani never condemned the behavior of those. uh, What is it they call them? A few bad apples, or in this case, a few thousand. He never apologized for the racism he incited against Dinkins. But that's the rather inconvenient thing about history. It always remembers what side you were on when it mattered the most. Stay unbothered. Jamel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify and Unbothered Inc. From Unbothered Inc., Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent. Rich Burner is our technical director and Evan Dick is our executive producer. From Spotify, supervising producer is Jeefa Yador and project manager is Jessica Dow. Our theme music is provided by Corey Greenleaf and Ben Darwish. This or That Music, The Choice is Yours, revisited by Black Sheep. Written by Andres Titus, William K. McLean and Johnny Hammond from Universal Polygram International Publishing Inc on behalf of itself and Peep Bow Music. You can find more from me on Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill. Please remember to subscribe and share with your friends.